Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Tuesday, November 21st, and I'm your host, Vincent Shen. Joining me via Skype from West Palm Beach, Florida, is Fool.com contributor Dan Klein. Great to have you back, Dan. Oh, wish I was there, but uh, I guess glad I'm here where it's uh, 80 degrees today. And not having to uh, travel during this week as well. Probably not, not the best week to be on a plane, I'll give you that. Yep. So we have a full lineup of topics to cover today. And Dan, the first story that we're going to talk about here, it revisits some news that we covered over a year ago in October 2016, when telecommunications giant AT&T announced that it would be acquiring Time Warner. So the approximately $85 billion deal would put together Time Warner's content creation business uh, with the massive reach and distribution of AT&T. So if you think about their television networks, uh, TNT, TBS, CNN, among many others, there's also HBO and the Warner Brothers Film Studio. So those major businesses from Time Warner could be leveraged across AT&T's own offerings. Uh, AT&T, of course, serving millions of pay TV subscribers, wireless customers, and internet subscribers across the U.S. and abroad. So the deal is expected to close by the end of this year, but there's always potential for regulatory authorities to step in. Well, after months of uh, some rumors and speculation of what the Justice Department might do, they've officially announced that they'll be suing to block the deal. So, Dan, I can't say this was a surprise for me, given some comments from the current administration regarding this deal and other issues that regulators have encountered with a prior similar acquisition, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But why is the Justice Department stepping in here? What's got them worried about well, this? Well, it's, it's not a surprise, but it does sort of reflect a new reality. I mean, it used to be Republican-controlled governments would generally allow this type of merger. And what we're seeing here is sort of a, a vague it's too big policy. It used to be that to block a merger, there had to be competitive reasons. You know, if uh, one wireless carrier was buying another wireless carrier and that meant there were less choices, that would be a clear reason to block it. In this case, the Department of Justice uh, a few weeks back had said they wanted AT&T to either sell uh, the, the TBS group, which is TBS and CNN and a whole bunch of other cable channels, or to get rid of DirecTV in order to allow the merger to go through. It wasn't a direct, hey, if you buy this, you'll own too much of this market. It's more of a broad, wow, if these two companies combined, they're pretty powerful and they have kind of a lot of pricing ability and can sort of force some things down other companies' throats. It's not a traditional Republican way of thinking, but it has been uh, pretty consistent from this Department of Justice and administration. Yeah, this is going to be the the big case for uh, the authorities uh, in this administration, like they're big, uh, they're a big deal, and uh, it's interesting to see how the enforcement model has changed. As you mentioned, you know, this would be considered more of a vertical integration. You know, you have the create content creators combining with the distributors. Uh, if it was two studios, for example, combining, we can see more of the more traditional uh, competitive concerns. But legal experts have already begun to weigh in on the coming legal battle, and there seems to be consensus that it might be tough for the Justice Department to lobby against this vertical integration. And because uh, blocked mergers in the past have typically been among direct competitors, and there's some precedent for this AT&T Time Warner deal, went into, and was it, I think, five or six years ago now, Comcast took over NBC Universal, and you know there were some it, issues there. Yeah, it's really a direct comparison. Now, when Comcast and Universal got together, there were some concessions made. Mm-hmm. The The problem is, and we, we've talked about this personally, is 
let's say AT&T and Time Warner agree to some concessions. They're not going to uh, raise prices. They're going to use an outside committee to determine how much another cable company pays for HBO. All of those things sound great on paper, but the reality it's it's sort of like if your 16-year-old agrees to do certain things. Uh, I'm going to study more. I'm going to do all. I'm going to be better. I'm going to come in on curfew if you buy me a car. And you buy the car. Well, once the car is there, there's very little you can do to, to enforce all of those concessions. And that's what we found historically whenever big cable or big wireless or any of these companies sort of says, oh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give more low-cost options. We'll do all these things. And then when push comes to shove, maybe they don't happen. And there's very little the Department of Justice can do after the fact. Yeah, I think that's a big part of this. The enforcement model has definitely evolved, I think, from some of the lessons that they learned from that Comcast-NBC deal, again, very much mirrors this latest AT&T Time Warner uh, potential merger. And you know, the regulators previously required Comcast to agree to certain uh, what they called behavioral concessions before they'd approve the deal. But not surprisingly, Comcast failed to deliver on many of those until they were essentially brought back to court and compelled to do so. So now regulators are looking for more uh, what's referred to as structural concessions, where you're either selling off a business, spinning something off before the Justice Department wants to approve the deal. And the Turner segment at Time Warner, as you mentioned, or the DirecTV satellite arm at AT&T have been named specifically as potential candidates that could be uh, spun off in order to help uh, the approval process for this deal. But it seems like the leadership at the two companies have indicated they have absolutely zero intention of agreeing to those kinds of concessions. And AT&T, which is in the driver's seat in terms of the merger, has mm-hmm. basically said, we're not going to do that. And the reality is, they have a pretty strong case when you when you read what some of the legal experts think. Because even if you look at, at Comcast Universal, uh, NBC Universal, the market has changed. And the idea that DirecTV offers you some sort of singular distribution, that doesn't really ring as true when you look at the internet and all the different ways people have to get content. So in a market where there's more choices, I can see why consumers wouldn't want this deal to happen, but I really can't see the regulatory basis to not allow it. Yep. So the agreement between these two companies, uh, between AT&T and Time Warner, it's valid through next April. And we should know by when, by then, whether the deal is successful, either with some changes or halted entirely. There is a breakup fee of $500 million due to Time Warner, actually pretty small given the size of this deal, uh, if the deal falls through. And we'll have updates for Fools when we know more. But our next topic is actually pretty similar in that it revolves around the potential acquisition of media assets, in this case, from 21st Century Fox. So there have already been several weeks of talks or interest reported from companies like Walt Disney, Comcast, Verizon, and Sony. Dan, can you tell us more about what parts of the business Fox might be looking to part with and what the various suitors seem most interested in acquiring? So Fox owns a number of things. And the key things that are being talked about here are their movie studio, their television production arm. And between those two, they own all sorts of rights, movie franchises, um, you know, The Simpsons, all the Fox animation. So that that's a real plum for any of these serv- services, because the reality is big name content has done very, very well. You can look right now at the box office and see, you know, Justice League and Thor and all these franchises doing well. The other pieces of it are the Fox Entertainment Channel. So FX, FXX. Uh, and the last piece is 
is sort of the foreign cable arm. Thirty nine percent of of Sky in in Europe. Uh, I'm not sure how much they own of the India TV group and a bunch of other related assets. So this is really a case of. Fox separating out its cable news and sports business, and that's not necessarily and its broadcast network. And those businesses don't necessarily profit all that much from owning all this content and all this distribution. Obviously, there's a little bit of a bleed through with with the television, but in theory, they can lock in rights deals and still be able to to have the benefit of that. While Disney or or Sony or Comcast could add all of these franchises, which they probably have a a better avenue to exploit, specifically Disney and Comcast, than Fox does right now. Yeah, we first focus on uh, Disney because they were uh, reported as being the uh, initial party to approach Fox regarding these deal discussions. Um, There's a lot to like in terms of what Disney can get out of this deal. Uh, As you mentioned, the film and television studios, plus some of those cable networks, um, that will definitely bolster Disney's uh, own media networks in their own studio businesses. And it's important. Disney's already sort of tied in with Fox. Uh, Fox owns Avatar, which Disney has a land at uh, at uh, Animal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Disney also has other presence uh, with the X-Men, which is Marvel, is also a, a property that could come home, which would allow them to expand their own cinematic universe. This ties in incredibly well with Disney's plan to launch a Netflix rival. This would give it access to everything from Goosebumps, which would be a you know a lovely series for this, to, uh, to franchise, franchises like Die Hard and Ice Age, or imagine what Disney could do in rebooting Home Alone. You know, th- there's a lot of content here that Fox can't necessarily get off the ground, that Disney could really do something with, especially as it spends billions of dollars trying to compete with Netflix. Mm-hmm. The, the, the sports-focused streaming service that's expected from Disney should be coming out early next year, and then the Disney-branded, more family entertainment service is expected to come in 2019 after the current agreement that Disney has with Netflix expires. But there's also Hulu. Um, these two companies, Walt Disney and Fox, have stakes in Hulu, and if Fox... or it, or if Disney was to take over that, it would have a majority interest in Hulu, and that could easily become a streaming service for the company that's more focused on uh, mature content, dramas, and it could complement that sports service that we mentioned, the Disney-branded one coming in 2019, plus all the other shows and properties like uh, X-Men, for example, you mentioned that can roll into it. Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Hulu is is also rolling out its live TV streaming, which for Disney, which is losing homes with ESPN, ABC, and all its cable networks, controlling Hulu and being able to make its own channels a key part of that live streaming package would also be another plum. Yeah. And the last thing I want to speak to is uh, some of the international assets. So there's uh, the 39% stake in Sky that Fox currently holds. So Sky's based in the UK. It's the largest pay TV player in Europe. And Fox actually has a $15 billion bid right now to acquire the remaining stake of Skype. But I believe right now that is uh, in a bit of a regulatory mire. And the prospects for that coming out with an approval are are basically going down by the day. And and some of that is due to Fox itself. So there there might be a a better chance of Disney making that deal if they want to. And some of the history there between those entities, absolutely. And then there's also control of Star India, for example. So this is a media company in India that uh, would 
would be another asset, I think, that would really help Disney, for example, expand its international reach. But those are two properties I think Comcast would also very much be interested in, in terms of expanding some of its international business. And ultimately... Go ahead. You could argue that Comcast and Sony need this more than Disney does. Mm-hmm. You know, Comcast is sort of number two in the franchise space, but while Disney has a very stable business where the vast majority of the movies it puts out every year are essentially guaranteed hits, sequels to things that have done well, expanded universe type things, Comcast sort of has an every other year structure. It doesn't own enough. You know, it has Fast and the Furious, it has The Lost World, but it doesn't have enough of those properties. And if it takes over this, you could argue its slate would then equal Disney. And just like Disney, it has the theme parks and the television and the ability to exploit that. It would also probably have the critical mass it needs to either walk into a Netflix and make a very strong deal or launch its its own service, which you know at some point the market will become too crowded. Sony, you could make the same argument. They're, they're probably the most in need. They have the least sort of stable system of, of franchises and models, but they don't have as many avenues to monetize and exploit them. But of course, there's all sorts of partnerships out there. I think if Disney wants this, they're going to pay very dearly for it because the competition is going to be incredibly strong. So I do want to focus in on 21st Century Fox's business, give listeners an idea of the revenue breakdown. So for the cable network's business, about $16 billion or 56% of their top line. Film studios coming in with $8 billion or about 30% of the top line. And then their broadcast TV, which would not be included in the uh, asset sales that are being discussed here, about $5.6 billion in the most recent fiscal year. And the company currently has a market cap of $55 billion. So even a partial buyout would be a huge deal in the media and entertainment industry. And I think the acquiring company is going to ultimately face some regulatory issues here, similar to what we talked about in the last segment on AT&T and Time Warner, in that any way you cut it, whoever the uh, acquiring company ends up being, there are assets and properties that will compete directly with either the content-focused rivals like Disney or on the distribution side with Comcast. And so there's uh, some uh, some of that to consider as well. I, I think the reality is any of the three potential suitors would be they'd be willing to sell off FX if it meant they could have access. It's really this is really an intellectual property deal, and everything else is icing on the cake. It's gravy. It's wonderful. But if you're Disney or Comcast, you know you're looking at your theme parks, you're looking at your your movie studio, your ability to fill in these streaming services, and that's what they would be buying. So all of these other things. If if Disney bought this, yes, they want distribution in Europe. They have obviously, animated films and other things that travel the globe. Marvel characters are are globally dominant. But if they had to sell the stake in Sky to make this happen, I don't think that's an impediment. I think this would be a a relatively easy negotiation in terms of, you know, hey, there are some regulatory concerns here. Yeah, the only thing I would say now with negotiation is that there's no deal on the table yet, no official price tag that I've been able to find anywhere. But if Fox ultimately comes to agreement with some, uh, with one of its suitors, definitely get a better price with these uh, with the various companies now kind of circling and, and interested expressing interest in the assets and you know the early talks with Disney stalled because they couldn't agree on terms and with a potential bidding war if uh, among the interested parties I think Fox will definitely come out with a more favorable deal than it would have otherwise um, my last point if we can step back a little bit and take a 10,000-foot view of not only this Fox News, but the AT&T Time Warner deal, is I think consolidation among 
the content creators and the, distribu- uh, the distributors in this industry, I think that's likely to continue as they try and diversify their businesses and get a little bit more leverage to compete and build these uh, these big kind of portfolio style companies. You know, Netflix ultimately has thrown the industry through a loop. They started with DVD mailers. Now they evolved into a streaming service and a powerhouse with dozens of original movies and TV series. So. Companies like Disney and Comcast, they're grappling with the cord cutting. They're seeing weaker growth and hits to their bottom line with customers changing how they consume their entertainment. And this, I think this model of combining the distribution with the creation in terms of the content, I don't think it's only going to become more prevalent barring some type of regulatory interference. And moving on, as companies like Disney and Comcast grapple with cord cutting, weaker growth, and hits to their bottom line, as customers kind of change how they consume their entertainment, I think this joint model combining the content creation and distribution is only going to become more prevalent. Any last thoughts from you, Dan? Yeah, it's really about a massive change in distribution. If you're Disney, you are very worried about cord cutting, but you're also worried about the fact that it's harder to get people come out to movie theaters. So yes, people still go for Thor, they'll still go for Star Wars, but that mid-tier movie has become a lot harder. So if you're Disney, if you're Comcast, and you can own all these great franchises and use them to create a platform, well, if movie theaters die, would I pay $19.99 a month instead of $9.99 a month, but I get two new Marvel movies uh, every six months and a, and a Star Wars and a Disney animated film and all those other things? This is about getting directly to consumers because consumers are pretty rapidly cutting out the middleman. Okay. All right. Let's move on then to the last part of this episode. Uh, it's Thanksgiving week, and I don't think uh, it would be right for us to not spend at least a few minutes talking about Black Friday. So, Dan, you and I have previously talked about how consumer holiday spending is becoming less concentrated in the month between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Consumers are starting their shopping in the beginning of November, if not earlier than that. And so, the same thing's kind of been happening at Black Friday before it was the day for blockbuster deals, but now, based on some of the spending data and also just what I've seen personally, if browsing circulars and other Black Black Friday ads, it's less about... Uh, Friday itself, and more about the whole weekend going from Friday through Cyber Monday, not to mention how a lot of companies are even extending their discounts and promotions to the weekend before Thanksgiving, so they can kind of build buzz, increase traffic to their online stores. Um, You were pretty excited to cover uh, this weekend (laughs) this year in terms of topics. What has jumped out to you so far? Well, what's jumped out to me is, do you remember the days of you're going to get up early Friday morning because there's one thing you want? There's a 55-inch TV at an amazing price, and there's only four of them at Target. Mm -hmm. I think those days are largely gone. Yes, there are still random, amazing doorbuster deals. But I think what's good for consumers, as long as you do your homework and and, and don't get duped, uh, and by by duped, I mean they save 50% off, but it's lower features or the markup was too high in the first place. But Mm -hmm. in general, prices are good from Thanksgiving morning or or midnight when when online sales start through Cyber Monday and really beyond through the season. So yes, you can go Thursday afternoon. uh, Some stores open as early as two or three o'clock or you could go Friday morning or you could go Saturday or Sunday or Monday and you're going to get a pretty good price on things like televisions, video games, clothing, some of the things, the traditional holiday gifts, toys. Yes, there are, you know, Monday's the best time to buy a toy online, says a lot of different websites. But 
does it really matter to you if you save 32% or 35%? The whole season has become one of very competitive discounting, and that's really being led by the fact that some of the physical retailers, Sears would be the most obvious example, are so desperate that they've cut prices by 30, 40, even 50% across the board already because they need consumers to come in. So it's a very good time to be a shopper. Yep. That Friday, the Monday period, probably uh, the period of peak interest, I think. But again, these promotions are extending uh, before Thanksgiving, after Cyber Monday, uh, well towards Christmas. And uh, Retail Me Not conducted a survey of shoppers I wanted to share. So some of the more interesting results I found, 68% of consumers will end up shopping this weekend, Friday through Monday, in that period we talked about. Um, They also plan to spend an average of $750 during that time, which is up quite a bit from last year. And the majority of shoppers will actually do most of their shopping online, uh, opting to skip the crowds and lines. And and, and that's so I wrote about this survey. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the key takeaways that's not true. (laughs) Um, People say that, but the reality is there's still between $5 and $6 being spent in stores for every every dollar being spent online. So I've read survey after survey where people say that, but if you look at the historical data, yeah, the gap is going to get smaller. Online shopping is going to grow a little bit more than brick and mortar shopping. But this idea that that retail stores are dead are are it, it's just not true. <laughs> the sales are actually going to be up if you look at the National Retail Federation uh, predictions. They're actually going to be up in brick and mortar stores by a few percentage points. Not as much as they're going to be up online. Uh, but sorry to jump on you there, but that's one of those points that's come up in a lot of surveys I've read that doesn't sort of jibe with the actual spending data. You know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think the takeaway from that is more so that in this specific four-day period, majority shoppers more likely to do their shopping online uh, rather I, I than because, a, just also, because of the high traffic time. But at the same time, you're right. I've seen other surveys that will mention the majority of shoppers have also noted that in this November to December, this extended full holiday shopping season, they're likely to visit physical stores to do some of their shopping at least seven or eight times, if not more than that. Yeah, and it's also worth noting that the the Retail Me Not survey, again, a lovely piece of research, was done online. So if you did a, st- a survey based on people at a mall kiosk, my guess is <laughs> that overwhelmingly they would say we're going to shop in malls. Yeah, fair Whereas enough. if you do a survey online, so I do think uh, you know if you're if you're going to look at data, you have to consider the source. And the reality is people are still going to stores now. You and I are both you know I guess compared to, to my parents or something younger shoppers, even though you're much younger than me. I am absolutely not going to buy anything in a store other than a supermarket after today. So (laughs) realistically, if you're not my wife and you're not my son, you have a choice between a Starbucks or an Amazon gift card. That's pretty much all the clever shopping I'm going to do this holiday season. All right. So a few more trends I wanted to touch on uh, to wrap up here. Uh, Something else in terms of looking specifically at that e-commerce channel, you're right, still, uh, last I saw in the data, about maybe 10%, 11% of total consumer spending uh, is online. So, you're, uh, most of those dollars still being spent at physical stores. But for that sliver, for that e-commerce spending, this is supposed to be potentially the year of mobile. So, e-commerce spending for mobile devices, uh, potentially overtaking desktop platforms this year. So, And the idea that even while someone is standing in line, potentially, outside your store waiting for that doorbuster deal at Target or Walmart or wherever it is, there are still opportunities 
for other uh, retailers or for competitors or that store itself to connect with the shopper while they're literally waiting in line, browsing their smartphone. And uh, then, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I think the word we're all going to get tired of is omni-channel. Ah, yes, that was and, my next point. <laughs> sorry to step on you there, but what what Walmart has really been leading the way with is this idea that however you want to shop, if you want to go to the store, you can order it online and know it's going to be there. If you want to be in the store and it's sold out, but it's available online, you can have it shipped to your house or to the store and come back later. It's really this movement towards whatever it is you want as the best shopping experience. So maybe you want to get up at midnight on Thanksgiving and shop all the best deals. You can order them, and maybe you'll pick them up in stores on Friday or Saturday, or they'll be shipped to your house. That's really what I see as the biggest change, is that all the big retailers are really trying to service the customer who finds Amazon more convenient and say, hey, however you want. You want us to bring it to your car? Do you, do you want a snack with it while, while you're waiting to pick it up? Whatever it is, the stores are getting a lot smarter about trying to take care of customers. Mm-hmm. And Listeners, you know, we've hit you over the head with this idea before that uh, the importance of omnichannel strategies, serving customers however, wherever, whenever uh, they want to do their shopping, uh, if you want a, a piece a piece of their wallet and their spending. Um, but ultimately, the idea being there will be lots of consumers visiting stores in the next um, you know, month, month and a half. But for those who don't, companies obviously need to be prepared as well to lure them in to have very uh, well-established digital storefronts as well. And I'll end on this note. So, the National Retail Federation expects consumers to spend about $680 billion in November and December this year. That's up about 3 to 4% from 2016. And that explains why this is often a make or break quarter for many of the companies we discuss in this industry. Any last thoughts, Dan, before we roll off? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing I always think about is as a consumer, there is a huge temptation to get caught up in this frenzy. There are amazing sales, but only buy what you need. Be responsible. Get gifts. But if you can't afford things, it's not a deal. So don't put yourself into debt just because you could save a lot of money on a TV. And believe me, I've been swept away. I'm the guy who walks in you know, because he needed paper towels at Target, who walks out with a $300 electronic item. But you have to be able to afford it. And don't, you know, don't spend money you don't have for the short-term gain of the holiday season. Have a longer-range plan. Yep, that's a great foolish note to end on. Thanks again, Dan, for joining us. And enjoy your Thanksgiving, by the way. Thanks, Vince. Uh, That goes for everyone listening as well. Have a great holiday, fools, and thanks for tuning in. Austin Morgan is our man behind the glass and producer for Industry Focus. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. Fool on. Thanks for tuning in.